This is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome back to this episode of Homestead Education. Me and Angela, of course, we hope you're doing so great. Uh, it is cold and snowy here. I don't know about you, Angela, but I am I'm so ready for spring. Um, I'm so ready for warm, warm, warm weather. And today um, we're going to talk about intro- introduction to beekeeping. Um, bees also like the warm weather. So that's where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> but. This is so, I mean, critical for so many reasons. Angela is really going to be our go-to for this conversation because she is a beekeeper. I am not. Um, and if you can remember back in uh, one of our episodes in season one, we kind of talked about how to support um, pollinators and things like that. And this kind of goes, um, you know, it's kind of like next level, the next step. And if you wanted to take that step. Uh, hi, Angela. How are you? I'm Good. Good. Good, good. Um, let's just jump right in. Um, okay. I can't remember if you have told folks, our listeners, uh, how long you have been a beekeeper. Um, it would be since I moved to the farm. I had already yeah. had the hive equipment before I moved here, and I was just sort of waiting to get the bees. So it's been six years. Yeah, that's yeah, that's no small feat. Well, it's a lot of seasons and it's challenging because I live in New Jersey. So that's considered a northern climate, right? We have winters and occasionally sub-zero temperatures. And so I do have to deal with the challenges of trying to overwinter bees. And I'm thankful for that experience. I think it's been um, a good sort of tools, a good skill set to have to know how to overwinter them. But it is challenging and it is, I think, a big deterrent for a lot of folks in the northern half of the United States, you know, why they might consider or shy away from keeping bees. Yeah. I mean, I feel like weather is kind of a contributor or a factor to a lot of folks not wanting to do a lot of things. And this being probably a, a major one because it's a it's a big, it's a it's a big step, I would say. And we talked about kind of our homesteading badges. I think that this, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Um, and it's a skill that, um, I think in just, you know, being kind of an outsider requires some patience and some, um, like seeking outside knowledge. Cause it's not like we all, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a skill. I think that you, you just have knowing how to, um, I guess, care for bees or, or raise bees or be a beekeeper. It's kind of a little bit different than, you know, troubleshooting how to grow a tomato. Um, yeah, it's not intuitive at right. all. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the main reason why folks, I guess, I guess we should say, why would you even want to do this? And from my perspective, I mean, it's a huge, obviously increasing pollination for all of our vegetables and, and fruits and the trees and things like that all of your crops. I mean, hands down, we could end this podcast right now and just say we need honeybees. I mean, it's just a fact. Um, But so many other things, all the byproducts that come from that, you know, honey, pollen, wax, things like that, I think are, are, are the, you know, end product or things that a lot of folks aren't actually thinking about. We really just think about, um, or I guess honey is the main thing that most folks attribute to raising bees, but it's more than that. 
Yeah. So one thing that's really interesting that I've come to, I don't want to say discover, I guess I've come to be aware of is that honeybees are foreign species to the United States, to North America. They're not native. Um, so they came over from Europe, I want to say in the 1800s. I could be slightly wrong. It could have been a little earlier, could have been a little later. Um, we have a lot of native pollinators here. We have our own breeds of bees. We have our own wasps and contributors to pollination for crops. The thing is, is that those pollinators you know, naturally occurring bees that we have in our environments here in North America, they don't produce honey, not in the amounts that we can harvest anyway. Um, I'm not aware of any that produces honey at all. That doesn't mean they aren't there. I just, I haven't been privy to that. Um, so the reason we want to keep honeybees is while we do have these natural, naturally occurring pollinators is because a lot of the um, pesticides and things that are occurring in our ecosystems nowadays, they affect those native pollinators. And so when we plant things and we try to take action to uh, be friendly and support those naturally occurring pollinators, we're naturally also going to attract honeybees, whether or not that be from your own hives, your own yard, or from a neighboring farm, bees will travel up to five miles for forage. So you kind of get into this whole thing of, well, yeah, I'm not in a position to uh, uh, keep honeybees myself. We absolutely, we talked about this before, can do things to support other people's bees and those native pollinators without keeping them yourself. So the reason we keep honeybees is obviously for honey, for wax and, and for access to their pollen but really they do provide a major boost to fruiting crops, to vegetables um, and to flowering trees. And all those things are really great for homesteads and farms. Yeah, I can't remember it, when or who I told this story to and, and maybe it was here, but there, I think it was two or three years back that we had a swarm of, um, like a, do you call them wild swarms? I don't even know. Just yeah, like it's a, just a swarm. Yeah. Of uh, honeybees in our huge tree over our chicken coop, which is right neighbors the garden, and it was the best year, the best year hand hands down for all of the produce, and I absolutely attribute it to, um, I guess supporting that that population. We just kind of let them hang out, and um, there were there were times when I was like, oh my gosh, I can't. I mean, there were so many that it was somewhat terrifying, which to me I think is the major roadblock. Mm -hmm. um, is I don't appreciate things like flying at my face. We've talked about this. I just think that they have a lot of other space and I just don't want them in my space. <laughs> Let's paint a little picture. One of my favorite things ever, shortly after I met quote unquote Mandy on Instagram was a video she had shared of her walking and she's talking about her geese. I don't know, she had her birds behind her. Mandy's you know, discussing something. All of a sudden, mid-sentence, this bee or fly or whatever flew into her cheek and she was good enough to share that footage. Obviously cameras all over the place, screaming ensues and she's upset and she comes back on after this little incident. And she's like all the space in the world and they choose to fly <laughs> to my cheek. It's not that Mandy doesn't appreciate them. She really feels like they've invaded her personal space. Yeah. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that that's a major, a major roadblock, but it's, a, I think it's a roadblock. I, I mean, I think that I'm being a little bit dramatic and also this is me, but, um, 
a lot of folks, I think, are a little bit afraid of it. So, yeah. and I, I don't know how to kind of get, get around that or whatever, but. Um, no, I, I had think, that though. I had huh? that. I yeah. had that up until I decided to keep bees because I was confusing yellow jackets with honeybees, first of all. But what got me over it was just like this weird epiphany moment, not to get all woo-woo, but I had a graphic design business. I went to a business networking thing at a nature preserve. I don't know why that's where the business thing was now that I'm thinking about it, but we did a nature walk and it was a guided tour. And the guy found a honeybee on some goldenrod and he picked up the honeybee off the flower. It was on his finger and he was like petting it. And he's like, you do not need to be afraid of honeybees. I'm not at its house. I'm not in front of its hive. I'm not, you know, breathing, interacting with it in a way that makes it think I'm a predator. And it was totally chill. And I was like, oh my God, I can do that. I was terrified of bees up to that point. And granted, your suit makes you feel like Superman. Like you've got a a shield. Armor on. Totally. I mean, they can sting through it. It's just, it's the mental thing. Right. Of being protected. Okay. So you bring up, you know, not being able to differentiate or, you know, associating yellow jackets or other flying insects with honeybees. So what, I mean, it kind of just brings us to sharing what you have in your hive when, when you have a hive, the members and, and we'll have all this in notes as we always do, but the members of a hive. So can you go through that? Yeah. So the way that a honeybee hive is structured, keyword here, honeybee is we have a queen She's the only one in the hive that can lay. Most people really like to see the queen, right? She's huge. Her trademark is her long abdomen. She'll have a bald spot on her back. She is everything to the hive. Everything in the hive, the workers, everything they do is with her in mind. She's so important. Workers uh, are female bees who are going to play the role of her royal attendants if they're raising a new queen, they make royal jelly and they'll feed it to the new queen while it's, you know, working on gestating in the, in the cell. But they also do all different sorts of custodial functions. They're cleaning the hive. They are making comb. And then we have the foragers. You have undertakers who take out the dead bees and their sole job is just when something is naturally died within the hive, they carry it out and shove it out off of the entrance. It's amazing. It really is truly a civilization. And then you have the freeloaders. Those are the males. I'm not joking. (laughs) The freeloaders are called drones. Their only job is to mate. You do with that what you will. Yeah, sounds about right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is why come the cold season, they get kicked out. The males are all kicked out by the females. They push them out. They are left to die in the cold because the queen does not mate over the winter season. And in addition to that, at that point, they're just using resources that could otherwise go to working contributors of the hive. And so come spring, the queen will then start to lay larvae that turn, you know, hatches as drones as males. And that's how males repopulate. They are seasonal members of the hive. Interesting. You said royal jelly. Is that mm-hmm. something that you made up or is that real? It's real. It's wow. like this super secret recipe <laughs> this <laughs> jelly that the these workers create and they put into a queen cell and they decide that this is the cell that's going to become a new queen whether or not they're trying to overthrow the existing one replace an old one whatever they create a very special feed this jelly that's like called royal jelly and that's what creates a queen is feeding off of that within the cell as it's gestating 
it really is like a civilization. It's like an underground world that nobody even knows about, except totally. not underground. Um, okay. Well, that's, I mean, you hear about these words all the time, especially in the homesteading community. And I mean, I think that all of us might know somebody. Um, I mean, even girl, even growing up, some of my parents, really good friends, they, um, we, you know, grew up in the suburbs, but they had kind of like a farm about 50 miles away and they, they still do to this day raise, I gosh, I think that they have like hundreds of hives. It's a, it's like a team of a couple of families that, and they source and they provide honey forever. And I can remember growing up, it was like the best thing ever. They would keep it on their doorstep and we would go for like $5 in a bucket and go get it. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we hear all these words and these verbiage, the, the verbiage surrounding raising honeybees and things like that. But to some people it's, it's foreign. Um, and this next part that I'm going to ask you about is very foreign. I mean, like the words are just like made up to me, but if <laughs> somebody if it's kind of like Royal jelly, I was like, is that real? <laughs> um, so pretend somebody wants to really start you know, where, where does we, we talk about how do you even like break into this? Like, how do you begin? And we talked about, you know, like in previous episodes, how to start seeds, where do you source good seeds, things like that? Where are, um, good places, shops, stores? I don't know where, where do people source honeybees? Okay. So the first thing we need to know about bees when shopping is we need to know what kind to get. There's actually different quote unquote breeds, if you will. Just like there's any, like a, like a breed of dog, a breed of horse, there's different breeds of bees and they have different traits. So there's a few common types, strains of bees, and this is in show notes and they have different characteristics. So one of the most common is carniolan bees. That's the name of the variety. These tend to be more gentle, which is why they're a good beginner bee. They have like so-so, you know, moderate disease resistance, and they have a good chance of overwintering. So if you're in a northern climate like I am, and overwintering is going to be something that you need to be concerned about, you wouldn't want to source a bee that is not known for their ability to overwinter. I am going to link in the show notes to an entire chart of different bee races, if you will, and all of the different sort of characteristics when it comes to overwintering, aggression, swarming ability, all that kind of stuff. So find that chart in show notes. Another common one is Italian. These are going to be kind of a little bit more hot tempered. <laughs> I mean, okay, do it that you way. Don't you don't say. Yeah. Uh, th they're moderately gentle. They have a lower disease resistance. If you tend to live in an area and a beekeeping association or a mentor can help guide you on that, that if you have a lot of disease prevalent in your region, you would not want to get an Italian, but they do tend to be pretty good at overwintering. Then there's Saskatraz, which is what I have. They're very cold hardy. You have Russians, which are going to be kind of aggressive. And because they're aggressive, they have better disease and pest resistance. They tend to be good for overwintering. And then we get into things like Buckfest, Caucasian, German. Those are all going to be on that chart. I want to touch on Africanized real quick while we're on the topic of bee species, because we've all heard the horror stories of the Africanized bees. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing about Africanized bees. They are highly aggressive. They are essentially wild honeybees, which isn't something that occurs on its own. Highly aggressive. Because they're highly aggressive and very wild, they're very good at resisting varroa mites, which is a major pest to domesticated bees. They have a high disease resistance. Uh, 
but Africanized, this is something that originated, the legend is based on a science project gone wrong. They were released out of a lab in some Brazil or South America. They are not an overwintering bee. And honestly, you wouldn't want to keep them and handle them regularly mm-hmm. anyway. So kind of take a look at what bee species is good for your geographical location and the goals that you're trying to accomplish. And once you have that information in hand, you can start looking at local bee sellers. It's all kind of, I mean, it, it, it's all kind of like coming together and, and where my brain is right now is kind of associating, you know, if somebody wants to get into this and where they're, so, where they source and, um, things like that, it, you have a here in notes also local obviously mm-hmm. is better than me, you know, in Missouri trying to source you know, a bee colony or race or, you know, population from your region of the United States. And the where I'm associating it is I'm still associating it like in the garden with plants because it's just like, there are certain varieties of tomatoes or things like that, that are going to be better in production in certain regions of the United States. And this is the same thing. Totally. Um, Yeah. So that's really neat. So then when it comes to being like, okay, I know that I want to buy carniolans, you know, Um, then you got to look at, okay, so there's two ways that you can purchase those. You can get them locally from a beekeeper. And most often that's going to be sold as something called a nuke, which is just a shortened version of a nucleus hive or a nucleus colony. We just call it a nuke. What that is, is a mini working hive. It's got a queen. You've got the males. Remember those are the drones. We've got the females. We've got the workers. And it's usually five frames. We all kind of picture like a beekeeper taking out a frame of honeycomb. That is what it comes with is five of those. And on those five frames, because it's a mini hive, we'll have some larva, which is capped. When it's when our larva, our little baby bees are capped, we call that brood, capped brood, capped larva. We'll have a couple of frames of that, both baby males, baby females. We'll have some functioning and living females and males. We'll have the queen. And then we might have some pollen. We might have some honey. So we really do get a mini hive. And the reason that's great is because they're already well on their way to being an established colony. If you can't find a local beekeeper and source this nucleus, this nuke, this mini working hive, you can order a package. You can get those online and they will ship them to you in the mail. Those commonly come from Georgia. Some come from California problem with a package and if that's all you're able to get that's fine but the problem is we don't really have a working colony they grabbed a queen right they grabbed a handful of worker bees and a handful of males and they put them all together in a box so they don't come with frames already established now they have to spend time and resources making comb for capping babies for putting honey into and they're all foreign to each other we've really just collected a group of bees and been like here we go figure it out. And so what that does is cause a little bit of a delay in terms of honey and brood, which are the babies production. So those are your two options, nukes and packages. I advise folks get a nuke locally. It's going to be adept to your climate and they're already functioning and working. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. I would say what I'm picking up on is anybody, I mean, even in general, I would think that if you have the option to, to get, to get a nuke versus a package. Yes. Just seems like they're a little bit more established and um, definitely for a beginner situation, that would be the route to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a lot of um, effort and just in general and in homesteading, 
as a whole, as like a blanket statement, we always kind of talk about trying to be, you know, ahead of the game, one, one step ahead, um, with weather or anything like that, be prepared. I talked about it this week. We were supposed to get like a foot of snow. We actually only got three inches, but you always prepare. So before you even bring home bees or have the thought, what, what, I guess, basic equipment does, because the nuke wouldn't come with any equipment. What doesn't actually come most of the time with like a hive or anything like that. That's something that you already have set up at your house. Okay. So, yeah. So my first hive, I had my hive set up. Langstroth is what that is called. That's when you picture like a beehive out in a field, right? And it's the stacked boxes. People usually paint them white or different colors. And on top of the lid of the hive, they'll stick a brick or a rock. And you'll see these kind of sort of villages in a bee yard. That's a Langstroth. And the reason that that is most commonly recommended is because it's just really easy to get in and out of, see Mm. what's going on and to work with. So the first time I got my bees, I had my Langstroth hive set up. And um, I just needed to go get the frames of bees to put it in the box. So I call the guy that I'm getting the bees from, brand new beekeeper. And I'm like, I'm ready. Today's the day that I had ordered the bees. And he's like, come on out. Do I need tools? Do I need anything? No, you don't even need a suit. Fine. I go to this guy's house in his backyard. He's got like this huge horseshoe of beehives. And I was picking up two. And he's like, okay, come on over. I'm going to show you which hive you're going to get. And I was like, wait a second. I don't have a bee suit. And he's like, you don't need it. They're super docile. Um, Nope. This is where, this is their nope. (laughs) So I went over there with my little transporter box, which is like a cardboard transfer box, right? To take them from point A to B. And I opened that lid and he opens the bee lid. And he's like, wow, this is a really healthy population. Bees everywhere. And it became a total exercise in meditation on my part, because now I've got bees all over the place. And he's like, speaks, speak softly, move slowly and do not get nervous because they pick up on those pheromones. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did, I didn't freak out. <laughs> I didn't scream. I didn't cry. I didn't do any of the things I thought I would do. I probably because I didn't want to look like a fool next to this like mentor that I had but he loaded the bee frames in the box. They're crawling on your hands. And sure enough, you just don't breathe your carbon dioxide out directly on them. Like a predator that's over them about to eat them. You stand away, you're gentle, you're slow. You put them in the box, put the lid on, ratchet strap it closed. And I drove it, both hives, 30 miles home. And then when I got home, the hive was all set up. I took out the bees from the transfer box on their frames. And it was just a matter of simply setting those frames into the new hive. So I had a Langstroth hive, super easy to work with. It's comprised of a bottom board, a landing board, right? Cause that's where the bees are gonna land and walk into the little hive. Then we have our brood box. We talked about brood, that's babies. That's where they live, that's their house. That's gonna be the first box. And then on top of that, you're going to set a second box, same size and shape, but that's where the bees are going to do their honey. That's sort of their massive industrial kitchen where they're going to work. So they live on the bottom and they work on the top. And then we just have two lids we put on top of that. We put an inner cover and an outer cover. Now, some people also get something in the beginning called a queen excluder. And this is a screen because that queen has that big abdomen. She can't fit through the screen, but all the workers can. And so they take that brood box, the living quarters, and they put that screen on top, the queen excluder. And then on top of that queen excluder, they put the honey super. 
And that way the bees can come and go and make honey, but the queen can't accidentally lay babies in the honey area. So when they go to extract honey later, they don't have to worry about accidentally taking any bees. So that is the sort of um, beginner setup of a laying straw hive that you would get. And then you need your things for yourself to use. You need your bee suit, your veil, your gloves. You're gonna need a smoker. You're gonna need some hive tools to be able to get in. And then there's other things that you can do based on your area, feeders, treatment pieces, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, you're doing a very good job. I wish that everybody could see my face and I'm like, oh, like this. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And um, I appreciate you kind of explaining. I mean, it is something that I feel like. So before I moved here to this farm, the. Um, I actually bought it from one of my friends and he had honeybees um, and he um, left some equipment. He took, he took most of it with it, including his hives or his, you know, pets or whatever we're calling them. But um, I, for a few seasons, I thought I would get into it and I never did, but it's always in the back of my mind. It's kind of just like one of those, like we talk about badges, but for me, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, a big dedication, I feel like, because we hear a lot about the overwintering and the preparation and all of that stuff. And it would be very sad to me if they didn't survive. And I think that that happens to a lot of beginners. Am I right? Totally. It took yeah. me three years to get hives to overwinter. Yeah. See that? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a learning curve there. That's the thing. You have to go into this knowing that it's not going to click until it does and that your bees um are very likely not going to make it the first couple of years based on the odds that come with the you know the trade of beginning beekeeping and that is okay um we have to understand that if we feel passionate about keeping bees we're never going to learn to keep bees without the act of trying to keep them so if they die that's part of the learning curve. And then all of a sudden, one day it clicks and you get good stock, which is why it's so important. I finally bought stock, stock of bees that had successfully overwintered. The other ones, this guy was just breeding and selling, breeding and selling. I had a hive that had gone through a winter and then I brought them here. And that's when everything sort of changed for me. And that's where having a mentor, finding a local beekeeping association following local beekeepers on Instagram, as opposed to these big national beekeepers that do things differently in their specific zones. That's why that's so important is because we need those tools, those pieces of information that are absolutely hundred percent relevant to you and your geographical situation. It makes sense. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, or I guess month to month or week to week, how much involvement do you have with caring for them? I mean, I'm sure it's seasonal. I'm sure there, you know, there's definite seasonal peaks, but in general, how much upkeep does it take? So just like with anything else, you can be as hands-on or hands-off, um, at very minimum, you're going to need to go in there a couple of times, at least over the summer. Once monthly is sort of the general rule. And every time we go in the hive, every time we manipulate, take frames in and out, look through things, we are stressing the bees. It's just part of it, right? Because that's not natural for them. You do risk and likely will crush a few bees when pulling frames and moving things around. But we're really just looking for hive health. I don't inspect every single frame 
when I'm in there doing my, my regular inspections, what I do is I look for just a couple of things very quickly. I look to see if there's new larvae, teeny tiny little baby bees, if there's eggs being laid. Because if I find those, I know the queen's alive. If I find multiple eggs per cell, that tells me the queen is not. And I have a worker who is laying the thing about workers who lay. Remember we said the queen can only lay eggs. Workers can only lay males. Worker mm -hmm. bees, if they sense that queen is gone, they'll start laying to try to repopulate the hive. It's not going to work. They only will lay males and they've laid multiple eggs in one little honeycomb cell, if you will. So that tells me based on the laying patterns, what I'm seeing in each one of those cells, whether or not I have a queen still, because if I find one little egg per cell, I know she's laying appropriately. If I start seeing multiple eggs per cell, I know she's gone and there's a problem. So the other thing I start looking for is, do I have enough bees to be capping this larva? Are they covering those freshly laid egg cells with wax? Are they producing honey? Do I see pollen? Are there pests in my hive? Yeah. What is and capping? So when we lay, when we have a queen that lays an egg, we don't want to just leave it exposed. So what the bees do is we have these sort of nurse bees that secrete wax to cover the newly laid egg cell and that protects the little babe inside that cell until it hatches and emerges that's when the bee is born comes out gosh that's so cool it really is like a whole this world they are incredibly civilized beings it's amazing i think that's where the disconnect is a lot too is you know people don't i mean i'm i'm learning so much people just don't this is just information that you just don't know until you know. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think because they are so civilized, we do get too many sort of eager beaver beekeepers that do more harm than good because they don't need us per se, mm -hmm. unless there's problems, unless we need to help replace a new queen, right? They really are capable of functioning on their own. We can feed, we can do things to sort of intervene and try to help them through winter, if their forage stores run low, we can do things to help them prep for a successful season. That's my job as a beekeeper is from spring until fall is to help them and assist them get ready for the winter. And the way I do that is just facilitate their health. I just watch for pests. I just watch for disease. And I help to make sure they have enough food stores going into the winter, because if they don't, I can make honeybee cakes or feed them to sort of help supplement them. So you can be as hands-on or off as you like. There are some people that are crazy about manipulating hives and they get really into, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experiment with this one and I'm going to do this with that one and I'm going to raise a queen here. And what happens if I do this over here? I don't do any of those real manipulations unless it's absolutely needed. Yeah. Well, I can appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, yeah, this is just, and I know we're going to have all this information in our show notes. And I also know that you are a really good resource um for beginners thank you i have a are, beekeeping class right i know on my site yes um, um and everybody should check that out thank you it is You're a beekeeping class yes um you know what? we'll set a coupon code up actually and we'll do uh let's just put homestead education in and we'll take a percentage off so i'll set that up um, that way, after this airs, if you're interested in trying a beginner beekeeping course, you can you can do that. There's like in-person and online courses. But before you fall in love with the idea of beekeeping, you really do just need to check with your city. Because even if you live out in the middle of nowhere, it's 
you have somebody that all of a sudden complains they have too many honeybees because they have a crop or something planted that the bees are drawn to, mm-hmm. just check with the city. Make sure you have the ability to do this. What are the buffer zones? How much space do you need to have from your bordering property lines from where you can place a hive? And then the other thing, the other reason this is of the utmost importance is you're going to get notifications if somebody is spraying a pesticide. So there's an orchard three miles from here. They spray pesticides. And when they do that, I, by law, get a notification because I'm a beekeeper that tells me that's doing that um, so that I can then watch for poison and that sort of thing. That's helpful. It is. So that's why you would want to get things registered and make sure that you're doing this the quote unquote official way. It is beneficial to you and your bees. And you have maybe for beginners and things like that, I I know we'll probably be asked for like books or something like that. Do you have a, we can probably maybe add them or something like that, a link to, because everybody has to start somewhere. So I know, you know, a lot of people just want to read and have something, you know, tangible all the time. So that's, that's another thing we can hopefully assist with. That's a good idea. We'll do that. We'll, we'll put the, um, a list of, of, books some resources in the show notes and I know the verbiage and kind of all the things you know I was like what is capping and there there are there's a lot of things that we're going to add um and you can always come back if you have questions don't don't come to me or if you do I'll just say (laughs) hey here's Angela um because Angela is the the, the beekeeper, not, not I, but, um, I appreciate it. I mean, I think it circling back to uh, the, the main reason we wanted to talk about this is it's always just the bigger picture for, for me. It's, you know, maybe I'm not the one raising the bees, but I can support them. I want to learn about it so that, you know, if my neighbor is or something like that, or, you know, maybe in the future we want to get into it, but, uh, we're, we're all here together. I mean, like as cheesy as that sounds, like we all have to live here and, and do this. And so if you can support in any kind of way, it's, it's important. Yeah. And it's good to just have a sort of a basic understanding of one above all else, don't swat at honeybees. Cause if you do, they're going to retaliate. And that's when they start singing and get aggressive. So take away the story of Angela's business networking meeting with the nature guide, right? If you see a honeybee and you're kind to it, gentle to it, or leave it alone, you're fine. Not to be confused with yellow jackets. If you need (laughs) to look at what a yellow jacket looks like, those assholes will come after you for no reason, okay? (laughs) Go look it up online. Difference between a honeybee and a yellow jacket. But then also, it's just good to understand that this this can be approachable. It's intimidating. I get it. I was there. I was intimidated for years until I got them through winter. But you can do it if it's important to you and it is a contribution to the surrounding ecosystem. And I know this was just an introduction and um, we're going to throw a lot of stuff at you that might seem like, whoa, this is a lot of information and we can certainly in the future, maybe go in depth with, um, you know, I don't know, moderate beekeeping, go in depth with a little bit more of like the species and regions and and how to maybe like how to treat and things like that, because we talked about a lot of, you know, burrow mites and that's, that's something that does ring a bell. Um, but this is a really good place to start. Okay. So uh, we will put up the coupon code for Angela's class. As always, we're definitely here to help. 
Um, and I just hope you learned something. I know I learned something. I learned something all the time when we talk about these things that, you know, maybe like surface level, you're talking to your friend or you see on social media or something like that. But, um, this was great and I really appreciate it. Yay. Thank you for being here, everyone. Mandy, thanks for your questions. Slowing me down when needed because I get very excited and, uh, yeah. Happy beekeeping. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.